Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, September 9th. First half of these U.S. Open quarterfinals in the books. Dramatic day on the men's side. We saw a five-set battle in our night match. We saw one of the stranger four-set quarterfinals I have ever seen played at a Grand Slam. Of course, on the women's side, we have two favorites clearly emerging to the semifinals. The two players that, in my opinion, belong there have played the best tennis on the top half of that women's singles draw. That means four matches for us to break down today. Of course, we will also be previewing day 10's matches. We want to talk a little bit about some of the other things going on in the tennis world as well. And joining me to do just that, as he has every day throughout this U.S. Open on this mini break podcast, you, of course, know him as our Cracked Rackets do everything, a former Tennis and men's tennis great, the only undefeated high school tennis coach in Missouri State history, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, how are you doing this morning? A little tired, trying to recover from that late night of tennis, but uh, I'll be okay. I'll bounce back. You know, I had this conversation with Maddie Cracks, and um, it, it was... Uh, in the moment, I regret. I went back and listened to the Great Shot podcast. I try not to listen to our pods too much because I just get angry at myself. And I appreciate all of you listeners out there, by the way, listening. I just can't hear my voice uh, because I know what I sound like. Um, but I was listening back to a conversation Matt and I had recapping week one, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, it, from a viewing experience, when you're watching these matches at home, it doesn't feel like there's no crowd there. ESPN's done a pretty good job filtering in the crowd noise uh, at this point I think the commentators have done a good job of you know adjusting for it but the only time I notice there's not a crowd is when the commentators talk about how empty it is how weird it is to be playing in an empty stadium and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for tennis I don't know if it's good that just the stadium feel can be replicated by simple crowd noise Uh, what does that say about tennis if I feel that way and curious how you feel about this Well, listen, I mean, you said it, right? The commentators keep bringing attention to something that we all know, right? And and so to me, it's kind of like, it'd be nice as the viewer. I mean, obviously, it's different for the commentator. You know, it's right there in front of them. So obviously, something hits their, you know, hits their mind, and they're going to say it. For us, like, it's kind of nice as the spectator to not really have to think about the fact that it's weird, and there's no crowd. Like, yes, we can look, and there's nothing, and and seats are filled by huge banners, right? Um, But it's nice when we can just watch the match, and it feels like a real tennis match, and then 10 seconds later, a commentator is like, oh, hey, isn't it weird there's nobody here? Um, And it's like, okay, yeah, we all know that. So, like, just just let us have this nice little facade and and watch the match, right? But, no, I mean, I think it's fair, and, you know, I think to the commentators credit when they bring it up most of the time it's to highlight some sort of dynamic that's different because of that absence right and so particularly in these crazy long matches tight settings I mean I think it's valid to talk about even if it feels somewhat normal for us it certainly doesn't feel normal for the players yeah, but my response would be, was there any less tension in that Zverev Chorich match than there would have been if it was a packed Arthur Ashe? Like, no, those guys were as tight as could be, and that, you know, that's just going to happen because it's a Grand Slam quarterfinal. But to your point, uh, it is kind of, again, I don't know what this says about tennis crowds, that it doesn't feel that noticeable that they're not there, that maybe tennis crowds aren't as active as they should be. You know, a ruckus French Open crowd or a late night at the U.S. Open in New York 
particularly if it's like a Delpo, you know, a Delpo playing late at night, that crowd gets, you know, loud, that crowd, very, very noticeable. But it, it's just something it was a little thing when I was listening back to the pod, I was like, huh, I think it, you know, what does it say about our sport that it's not that weird that the crowd has been replaced? Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, I maybe others feel differently, but I haven't felt that weird about the no crowd. And, you know, now we're 10 days in, but really two and a half weeks into this New York experiment. And I just feel like that's noticeable or notable, yeah, I, excuse me. No. And, and look, I think to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sure. It's a little weird. I mean, look, when you think of a tennis crowd, it's not going to be the most rowdy compared to other sports. To me though, it's a pretty good sign if it's not just everything you think about and you can still enjoy the tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and I mean, certainly I have enjoyed the tennis, and I hope all of you tennis fans has have as well, because we are set up for a really exciting home stretch of this U.S. Open. Again, we're going to recap all four matches, since there's only four singles matches. We'll talk about all of them a little bit. We will preview Day 10, and then, of course, get to some of the other things happening in the tennis world. Of course, the reason we're able to do these podcasts day in, day out here at the mini break is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and error bar and i'm just going to keep it simple again look good feel good play good midwest sports arrow bar your tennis game midwestsports.com you'll find everything you need from an equipment standpoint the newest rackets the newest gear they've got it all you use our promo code cr15 you'll get 15 percent off your order free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars and best of all that free can of wilson extra duty tennis balls of course if you go to aerobar.com use our promo code cracked 15 you'll get the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors. And of course, it comes with a podcast as well, our Getting to the Point episodes with our friends at Aerobar, focusing on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game. Go to aerobar.com, use that promo code CRACK15. Again, we're so grateful to our sponsors for their support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Midwest Sports, Aerobar, look good, feel good, play good. All right, Jamie, let's talk about some people who certainly looked good. I imagine they're not feeling their best, but they produced some outstanding tennis as we talk about the U.S. Open Day 9. And let's just start with the match that went the distance, the nightcap. The reason you and I are both a little bit groggy this morning, Denis Shapovalov taking on Pablo Carreno Busta late into the New York night. And that is just a great feeling. It's great to see these nighttime matches in New York. It does feel like tennis is back. And that's just something that after five and a half months, what we've all gone through, something we all needed for sure. And, you know, this match was a battle in every sense of the word. Five sets, Pablo Carreno boosted the number 20 seed, pulling out, I was going to say escaping, but that doesn't feel quite quite right because it wasn't an escape. It really was a fantastic back and forth battle. Carreno boost a 3-6-7-6-7-6-0-6-6-3 win. Jamie, your initial reaction to this result. Yeah, I mean, this was just a fun match from start to finish, had a tons of ups and downs. And, you know, I, I told you this quite a few times last night. It was like I, when I was coming into this match, I was thinking I was going to be rooting for Shapovalov. And I don't know, as soon as I started watching it more and more, I was like, no, nah, I want Karina Busta to win this. And, you know, <laughs> look, I can I can appreciate his game style a bit here compared to Shapovalov, who's going out and swinging for the fences, always trying to be offense. Karina Busta just so solid on the defensive end. And for me, too, this was a huge win for Karina Busta because, you know, look, we 
let's not let's not dwell on it too much. We all know how we got here with Djokovic being defaulted, right? So this to me proves that he's able to be here and deserves to be at this stage. Really important for him, and, and really proud of the fact that he was able to get through this one. Yeah, I, you look at the stats for Pablo Carino Busta. He just played his typical brand of high percentage tennis, and obviously for Pablo Carino Busta, it's going to be the second uh, U.S. Open semifinal of his career, second Grand Slam semifinal of his career. But look, in a five-set match, if you can make 71% of your first serves, pretty happy with that number. If you can go 69 of a 102 on those points, 68% conversion rate, pretty happy with that number, 54% on the uh, second serve as well. Again, pretty happy with that number and then he created 21 break chances for himself he he just played a solid set I mean minus nine winner to unforced errors which again over the course of a five set match when you're playing someone with as much pop who wants to take as many chances as Denis Shapovalov that's a pretty good margin he just played high margin tennis he played to big targets that backhand of his did such a good job of just absorbing the for, the Shapovalov forehand of using Shapovalov's pace and depth to just redirect that ball keep the backswing condensed of course he took his chances on the forehand wing as well it was just a really solid game plan for Pablo Carreno Busta who said okay I'm in this quarterfinal you're right with a lot of luck uh, a lot of luck went my way and you know he was up a break in that first set but of course you imagine Novak Djokovic if that match finished would have a thing or two to say about that scoreboard, but for Pablo Carino Busta, he did exactly what he needed to do coming into this match, which was simply make it physical and put himself in a position to be competing at the end. I mean, he took the two tiebreakers in this match, Jamie. That just epitomizes how well he competed. Yeah, and look, given the past results between these two, yes, it's, it's it's evident that Shapovalov is not the same player, but Karina Busta apparently knows how to beat him in tie breaks, right? I mean, remember at the mm-hmm. U.S. Open just a few years ago, he beat him 6-6-6. Six, six, and six. So clearly Karina Busta knows how to play a tiebreaker against Shapovalov. And, you know, look, this is not necessarily for Pablo, but for Dennis in this one, he has so many chances here. And, and he knew this was going to happen, right? I mean, he knows Karina Busta's game. He knows that he is going to be the one on offense for most of the match. He knows that things are going to be on his racket. And so, yes, for a good, good deal of this match, he does a great job pushing the envelope and doing those things. But... I mean, look, Karina Busta just so solid. He knows that if he stays solid enough to be in the match, that he can eventually get this thing done. And, and that's what he did. So, you know, the fourth set, obviously a weird little blip. You know, in my mind, Karina Busta gets uh, gets broken, doesn't get any traction back, and decides, okay, we'll let the fourth go. Shapovalov is rolling. Let's get ready for the fifth. So really, you know, I don't know. It was, it was impressive how he was able to flip that fifth um, after the, the quick fourth set. But... Listen, a great match and definitely deserving of a U.S. Open quarterfinal. No, let's be clear. That fourth set was a tank. I mean, it absolutely was. He goes down an early break, let it fly. And yeah, he got the back work down right away, but he bounced back immediately, put himself in a position again to continue to compete. And you look for Pablo Carreno Busta now, you know, second semifinal at this U.S. Open. He's gone two fourth rounds at the Australian Open. He's made semifinals of Indian Wells and Miami in his career. He's made quarterfinals of Cincy in his career. He's obviously been ranked as high as inside of the ATP top 10. This is a 
a guy who, you know, again, not to pat myself on the back, if you go back and listen to some of our U.S. Open preview content, he's been one of the 12 best guys on hard courts over the past five years. And I know that sounds like a pretty broad category, but in a wide open Grand Slam, if you're one of the best 12, that's a significant advantage. And he had the institutional know-how of operating through two weeks at the U.S. Open. And look, of course, when I said I think he's a guy who could do well, I meant quarterfinals until he plays a Djokovic or something like that. And evidently, you know, it took an extraordinary circumstance for him to get beyond the quarterfinals. But yeah, to your point, it's a credit to the way he competed. And it's not like Shapovalov blew some huge lead in either of the tie breaks in set two or three. Carreno Busta just played such high percentage tennis, kept making that extra ball. Now, Let's talk about this from the Shapovalov side because in this match, 26 aces against 11 double faults, 76 winners against 76 unforced errors. You take out the serves there, obviously he's down to 50 and 65, so that uh, margin on the ground looks a little bit worse. But 52 of 70 at the net here, and I swear to God that does not include all of the approach shots that cause forced errors. Uh, 62% first serve percentage, he won 79% of those points. 8 of 16 on break points 1. There were times when he sprayed. There's no denying that. There were times when the nerves of a first Grand Slam quarterfinal, of the opportunity of getting to a semifinal with no Djokovic, Federer, Nadal looming, clearly was in the mind of Denis Shapovalov. But for a first Grand Slam quarterfinal performance, I really don't have too much to complain about for Denis. No, it wasn't too bad. I think, obviously, you mentioned it. He sprayed. I think some of the decision-making, um, questionable at times. I mean, I think there's just that sort of pressure when you're playing a Karina Busta who can be so solid and is going to say, hey, you know what? If you want to do this, you're going to have to go out and win this thing. And look, Shapovalov, I mean, realistically, if you play this match again, he, he can come out on top here, right? The serve was booming. Um, you'd like to see the first serve percentage a little higher, but, I mean, he was bombing the ball, so understandable you'd like to see him a little bit more effective on that second serve i think for me too many errors from the ground i mean yes that's going to happen when um like that's going to happen when you're going for so much but if you take the aces out of the equation he is substantially under um in the winners to unforced errors category so um Look, it is what it is at this point. We knew a lot of how this match was going to go. I think for me, you mentioned the net points. That was great. He did a phenomenal job at the net. He also did a good job of attacking Karina Busta. For me, this is a little more specific. He needed to stop approaching into the Karina Busta backhand um, Mm -hmm. because the the Karina Busta backhand just so solid and was able to pass him and make difficult volleys the entire night. So... But look, those are all very. That's a very minor tactical thing, and, and something that I'm sure he's going to see in the film. But regardless, you mentioned it. A good performance, and you know, I, I think it's going to bring him confidence the next time he gets to the stage, and he certainly will. Yeah, I think just a couple of things quickly, and then we can move on. I think a the Shapovalov second serve percentage uh, win percentage forty percent. The eleven double faults. I think that a lot of that had to do with Karina Busta was getting such good depth on that second serve return that Dennis, much like Zverev, was like, you know what? I'm just going to go after the second serve a little bit more. I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to live with the double faults, but it's just going to give me better opportunities to hold serve. Uh, part two of that is look again. 
Plan A for Dennis. Attack, attack, attack. I love how he stuck to it. This is a little nerdy thing, but his inside-in forehand, then down-the-line forehand combo, which is something he likes to set up a lot. Uh, it There are times when you're just like, oh my god, this guy blows you off the court with that two-shot combo. He's really exceptional with it, and I think he really is getting better and better on the backhand return, but yeah, there were times when he forced his way in on a poor approach shot, and if you give Carreno Busta a clean look at a pass, or you give him two looks at a pass. He's just too good. He's too fit, and he's going to take advantage of that moment. But yeah, I mean, the 6-0 set kind of lobsides this, but total points won 160 to 152 that Shapovalov was in the lead. That's not going to surprise anyone considering Shapovalov lost two of these sets in breakers. He was right there, so I completely agree with you. I thought this was a great performance. I thought both guys played at a pretty high level as well. Again, there were streaks of errors from Shapovalov as there always are, but This was a great match, a physical match, the sort of match you expect out of a Grand Slam quarterfinal. A match that you certainly hope for maybe a little bit higher quality tennis, but certainly you like the tension, the drama that comes with a quarterfinal like this. Our other quarterfinal on the men's day, Alex Zverev advancing to his second straight Grand Slam semifinal, the second of his career as well, as he knocks off Borna Cioric in four sets, 1-6, 7-6, 7-6, 6-3, eerily similar to Alex Virov's win over Stan Wawrinka, where he also dropped a first set breadstick at the Australian Open. But nevertheless, it's ugly, and Zverev finds a way to advance. Jamie, given that it's Alex Zverev, you know I have thoughts on this one, but just your first reaction to this match. Yeah, I mean, so let's start where it's most obvious. You've already mentioned it a couple times. This was not the highest level match, particularly in the first half of it. I mean, you, you and I talked about it. I think a lot of what was attributed to George being tight is absolutely true. Yes, you saw the misses. You saw some of the shots that seemed like they didn't have much behind him. To me, also, some of that is strategic, though, because I think he sensed that Zverev was so tight, and he was like, okay, I'm going to make the ball. Um, And so, to to some degree, I understand that. But yes, let's be clear, this was neither guy's best tennis. Um, So, quickly quickly to that, at one point in the commentary, because I was on the road, and so I turned on my ESPN app, and I will say, I made an adjustment, I didn't watch the video, I was just listening to the sounds of the court, as well as Cahill, BG, and Chris Fowler on the call, which was actually delightful but that's a story for another time yeah it it was delightful to like just listen to the rhythms of the match and you can tell who's who based on the sound that's coming off of the racket based on the squeakiness of the feet like if there was a lot of squeaky feet before uh the ball was struck I'm like oh that's George hitting if it was a little bit longer on the stride and a little bit uh, of a deeper thud I was like oh that's a zero of contact point and that was delightful but that's a story for another time anyways at one point in this match you know I think it's Brad Gilbert goes, hey, 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 killer, killer. Or, I, no, I, don't, I was going to try and do my BG voice. Hey, killer, did you see that text we got from Jim Courier? And killer's like, what? What, what did it say? And, you know, BG's like, he says, this is the lowest uh, lowest level final ma- or high level match since I played Dave Wheaton in Miami. And, like, they're, you know, again, that was a poor imitation. I apologize. Nevertheless, they're ripping on the match as it's going. They're like, yeah, I got a text from Jim Courier, Grand Slam champion, who's also saying this match sucks. It was ridiculous. Yeah, listen, you mentioned it. It was no secret that the level of this match was not up to par. Um, 
look, it is what it is. I think in some ways this is a good sign. Look, I'll just spin it for your sake. I'll take the positive from the Alex Barrow side. Getting through a match in an ugly fashion, I mean, hey, BG of all people winning ugly should appreciate this, right? Um, but it's unfortunate to see. I would have expected a higher level here, especially given some of the performances that we've seen from these two guys, especially Chorich. Um, you know, can he live up to the stage? Unfortunately, not necessarily, um, but look, Zverev, he's got to feel good about getting through this match. I think there's some confidence that can, they can he can take away the saying, hey, even if I'm playing poorly, I can get through this match. I can find my rhythm and you know find a way to get it done, ultimately. Listen, let's be clear, though. That level is absolutely not going to get him to the next. Like he, He's not going to be able to advance through the tournament with that sort of tennis, though. So can I give you the zig to the, you know, or I guess, you know, there's two types of commentators, the people who zig along with everyone else and those who want to zag in this instance. Can I give you the zag? I, I feel like that's a, that's a nice little preamble for yourself being unique, but sure. <laughs> See, this is why I like working. This is why I will never say no to a podcast with you, Jamie, because I appreciate you calling me out on my bullshit. Um, yes. So quickly, I'm going to give you the zag that I'm very proud of, the zags here. Yeah, yes, I think it's going to be different. I think Zverev was so nervous. and ju- er, Nervous is the wrong word, but clearly tight. I mean, he was clearly just so yes. apprehensive with his tennis. He was clearly so afraid to you know, take the big chances, and... I think it was contagious. I think he got Chorch to play an ugly match. I think Chorch came out of the blocks looking to be aggressive, looking to move forward, looking to play standard tennis, and just that just wasn't happening for Alex Zverev. And I think Zverev was playing so apprehensive that it threw Chorch out of his uh, out of his rhythm. And I actually think it ended up benefiting uh, Alex Zverev because you look between these two, the biggest weapon on the court was the Zverev serve, and in this match he made seventy one percent of his first serves. Won 76% of those points. It's ultimately why he was able to take the two tie breaks in sets two and three. I think by making this match as ugly as it was, it actually played to Zverev's advantage. Yeah, I think it did eventually. Now, you know, I don't think that was a purposeful thing. He wasn't out here saying, "Now I'm going to come out here and play this bad." But I, I think Chorich, I think, I think you're, I think that's fair, right? Chorich did get lulled into it a little bit, um, and, and especially because it worked in the first set. It's one of those things. Where it's like, well, hey, I mean, I guess I should just keep doing this, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. minus the errors, I can just make balls in the court. And yeah, it's a weird sort of matchup, but I, I'm going to do what worked, and ultimately it gets flipped on its head. You think. I mean, this is completely different if George ends up with that second set breaker. I mean, at the near the end of the second set, Zverev went on an absolute run of points um, where George really had the chance to open this thing up. He could have even gotten a break at the end of the second and gone up two sets to love. Zverev comes up with an incredible get, then gets to the breaker, then you know rattles off a bunch of points. So look, he did he did well. Or excuse me, that was at the end of the second. Mm-hmm. and going into the third, my apologies. But either way, another breaker, and Zverev ends up running away with it because he has that momentum. Look, make no mistake that Zverev feels really good about getting through this match. You make an interesting point. He did make it sort of a weird, broken match, and that's fine. For Borna Chorich, though, I think he probably came off the court and was like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. 
I agree with you. It was a complete rhythm-disrupting match. And, you know, we can get into the stats now. For Alex Virov, I think you sort of talked about it. He made this one physical in this match. He's covering 46.2 feet per point. Every time, anytime you're over that 45, that's a physical match. George in this one, 44.2. He was right there. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned it. Alex Virov, so effective with that first serve. And when it's landing in like it was, particularly in that second set tiebreaker, which he needed, and he had break chances in that second set to close it out before the breaker. It was clear after he got that break to get the set back at floor all that he had sort of captured the momentum at that point, finally stuck his nose out in front and was kind of just able to hold on from there. But yeah, what's so amazing, and you know, they were comparing Medvedev and Zverev as movers, and you and I were talking about this before the podcast started. I think Alex Zverev, it's not as fluid as Daniil Medvedev, but Alex Zverev, again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, for his size, the combination of length, speed, you know, just agility, all of the above, it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. The way he tracked down that drop shot to hit the sliding backhand down the line passing shot, again, what's the difference between a good mover and a great mover? A good mover slides out of their shot, a great mover slides into their shot. That's the sort of movement Alex Zverev is capable of, and just with his length, that frame, the the power he's able to produce as well, it was the, the fact that he made this match, you know, when nothing else was working, he turned to the things that physically just separate him. He made the match physical with his serve. He made the match physical with his movement. And you mentioned this, winning ugly, sometimes that's the name of the game. And that's what he did today. Yeah. And and look, it's great to win ugly. It's not necessarily great to play ugly. Um, yeah, <laughs> there true, is a true. difference there. Um, and, and I think generally speaking, Zverev needs to clean this thing up um, if he wants to continue to advance. Because you mentioned if Chorch doesn't get lulled into this and isn't pretty tight himself Zverev isn't winning this match um, so it is what it is at this point a really good win for him a really solid third set breaker gives him that momentum that he needs going into the fourth um, but ultimately this one I mean I'm looking hopefully to see a much higher level from Alex Zverev in the semis no, absolutely. And I mean, Pablo Carreno boosted is an ideal opponent for him, again, because he's not going to be able to hurt him too easily. Zero's going to have a lot of chances, and he's going to be able to make the match physical. And look, 52 winners against 46 unforced errors, when everything's not working too well for you, that's pretty good. I also like that he changed things up. He went to the net a little bit more, 22 of 42. Not great, but again, 3 of 8 efficient enough on these break points, on these net chances, good enough with his first serve to take control of this match. Let's do a quick wrap-up on Borna Chorch here because obviously, again, five years ago, he was the youngest player in the top 100, the youngest player in the top 50. He was a guy many had circle as the future leader of this next-gen uh, crew. And in this match, again, 72% of his first serves go in, 70% first serve percentage wins 57%, uh, wins 70% of his first serve points, excuse me, wins 57% of the second serve. 29 of 42 at the net, 37 winners, 41 unforced errors. And obviously for him, the win over Tsitsipas to follow that up straight sets over Jordan Thompson here. This was an either or match. Obviously, he could have won this one coming out of this 2020 U.S. Open. Going to be hard to you know resist hot takes because we just haven't seen that much tennis in 2020. But how are you feeling about Borna Church? Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling really good about Borna Chorch at this point. I mean, I think seeing him make a run to the quarters um, was absolutely not expected. 
um, but really pleasant, right? Because we've seen the upside that this guy has. I mean, his wins in the past few years where you see flashes of it, you're like, all oh, right, this is why this guy was such a stud um, and why he was looked at so highly. You know, he, he's beaten big players. He knows how to get through matches, right? That five-set win over Sitsipas showed a ton of grit um, and competitive drive in addition to the great tennis that we know he possesses. So, a really promising one for me. I mean, granted, yeah, who knows what the future of 2020 holds just simply in terms of tennis. But for me, I think this is an important one if George can back this up. Now, I'm not saying he has to go win every tournament he plays or has to even get to the finals, but he needs to be able to keep this sort of momentum going because if he wants to be sort of that household name at the top, he's got to show up with more consistent results. He can't just disappear and then show back up at a tournament or two and then disappear. It's, it's just not going to cut it. Yeah, so much of it is injury-related, right? And hopefully for him, he can stay healthy. But I agree with you. You know, you look at a guy, he and Alex Diemenauer, I just, I don't see a world where over the next, you know, eight years, we'll say, they should be making at least one quarterfinal between the U.S. Open and Australian Open. And I know it's draw-dependent, but those guys are that good on hard courts, right? And so I just, I agree with you. The the expectations for Borna George are raised. We thought he could do this, that he did it after not playing particularly, uh, you know, well or a lot of tennis over, you know, the past 12 months of competition. Uh, It's really impressive for him. So I agree. You know, we were teetering. Do we continue to think of Borna Chorch in the same breath as some of these other next-gen guys? The answer after this tournament is an unequivocal yes. Do not give up on Borna Chorch yet. But very dramatic-filled men's day. That's obviously why we led with it. That was not the case on the women's side. And I'm not saying that we didn't see good tennis because we really did see some exceptional tennis here on day nine, but we just saw two definitive performances. We saw two players at the peaks of their game saying, you know what? I'm ready to advance to the semifinals. And let's start with the player who all of us in the tennis world circled as one who was, you know, a top, if not the top, contender to win this year's U.S. Open. Number four seeded Naomi Osaka, who obviously finals of the Western Southern Open. She pulls out with injury. She looked so good there. Uh, obviously, she's also been doing so much off the court as well, using her platform to try and inspire change, to try and inspire you know, uh, social justice. And so for her to, to be doing all of that as well and then to just continue with a hamstring injury and to play the way she has here, a 6-3-6-4 win over Shelby. Rogers and another match where she drops 12 total points on serve, Jamie. She's 20 of 24 on first serve points. She holds Rogers to 8 of 24 on Rogers' second serve. I mean, 24 winners against eight unforced errors. It's like, I, I you know, I've said it, it, sound, it seems like this is a coronation for Serena that she's going to end up in the final. That may be true, but I am sticking with this take from start to finish. Naomi Osaka, when she plays her best tennis, is the best player in women's tennis right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's just true. Definitely hard to refute at this point. This is a really clean performance from her, and and really the word that comes to the the word that comes to mind is just straightforward. Um, you know, you mm-hmm. mentioned the winner to unforced air differential. Sure, even take the aces out of the equation and the double faults, she's still well above in the winners category. Um, for me, really, the only thing I'd like to see a bit better is just getting more first serves in. Right, she goes twenty four for fifty one, so under fifty percent. Um, but you know, that's nitpicking here because it didn't even matter. She was so good with everything in this match um, you know gets through three and four this is exactly what she needed a simple straightforward win into the semis to continue her momentum and yeah you're absolutely right when she's playing her best you know I don't think the other people in the draw can touch her right now 
No, and physically, she's rocking and rolling. She's moving well. She was able to handle the pop of Shelby Rogers. She was able to force Shelby into tough positions where Shelby started feeling a need to press, started feeling a need to go big with both the forehand and the backhand down the line. And look, I'm not trying to take anything away from Shelby Rogers, who objectively has been one of the most impressive players since the restart in August. You know, knocks out Serena and Lexington to make the semifinals, quarterfinals here. You know, you look for Shelby Rogers with this result so encouraging. She's back where she belongs at number 55 in the WTA ranking, seven off her career high. And just a really fun section of the rankings for you, Jamie. 53, Coco Goff, 54, Teichman, 55, Rogers, 56, Watson, 57, Danielle Collins, 58, Jess Pegula, 59, Bernarda Pera. That's how good the the depth right now is in American tennis. You have four women, but five women right there, sorry, ranked between 53 and 59, and they all feel like they could beat anyone on any given day. And, you know, Shelby played a big match. She did what she had to do. You have to take chances against Naomi Osaka. You can't just grind and let her dictate because when she's playing like this, popping the serve, popping the forehand, you're just not going to beat her. And simply put, that was the story of this match. Naomi Osaka was too good. And again, what's concerning in this match? Only a 47% first serve percentage. That's not great, but she was effective enough with the second serve, 19 of 27 on those points. And she seems to be able to find a way to play offense still with that first strike tennis uh, on a second serve point. I mean, it's going to be a really fun matchup between her and Jen Brady, and we'll get to the Brady point in a second. But I guess if you're Naomi Osaka, is that the biggest concern as you head into the semifinals and then hopefully ultimately the finals? I mean, maybe, right? I, again, I think, you know, right now hers, her, I don't even know how to say this. At this point, her mindset really isn't one of concern given how yeah. well she's been playing. So, yeah, I mean, you want to think about the first serve and making sure that you're putting that pressure on your opponent. But she also has to have confidence with the fact that even once she gets into a ground stroke rally, she is just a step ahead of the rest of the field. Now, you mentioned it. We'll get into a sec. Somebody who's looked very, very good from the ground as well is Jennifer Brady. So potentially more danger there. But regardless, if you're Osaka, you've got to be feeling confident and good from the ground right now. Yeah, no, I mean, the one concern would be you only lost 12 points on your serve all day long, and yet you still managed to get broken. That's just tough to do. It means you played yeah. one really sloppy game. But True. that's the thing. is like, okay, you played one sloppy game, Naomi. How do we rein that in? How do we ensure from start to finish there's no slop? Because as she comes up against Jennifer Brady now in the semifinals, uh, the margin for error is going to be even thinner. And I know we're not breaking down these matches to the length we did the men's one, but they were just fairly straightforward. Naomi, yeah. Osaka is playing such big tennis right now. She was dominant. The exact same thing, Jamie, can be said about Jennifer Brady, who just, I mean, she was up 4-0 in her match against Putin Seva before any of us realized the tennis had started. And I mean, Putin Seva was able to come back a little bit in that first set, got it to 6-3, but then, you know, Jennifer Brady up an early break in the second set, and she rocked and rolled from there. 3-2 and two win for Brady. I believe she has yet to drop a set at this U.S. Open. I think she's won something crazy like what 20 of her last 22 or 22 of her last 24 sets and I mean in this match it was just you know Putin save as a grinder she's gonna throw the kitchen sink at you 20 football I imagine you play again I've said this to you yesterday or two days ago I imagine you play very much like Yulia Putin save in that there's no shame in the shot selection you're gonna throw the elevated ball you're gonna throw the slice the short angles whatever you can to throw your opponent out off of their rhythm and yet in this match it didn't matter because Jennifer Brady 
was just in rhythm. She was too good from start to finish. And, you know, I think Putin Seva had chances. I think this match was a little bit closer than that three and two scoreline might indicate, but it was that routine. Jennifer Brady was never threatened in this one. Uh, yeah, I don't. I I might disagree. It might have been less close than it seemed because Putin Seva got two break points but converted them both. And if she doesn't get even one of those, this score looks even more lopsided. Look, at the start of this match, it looked like Jennifer Brady was going to run away with it. Oh no, because it was just not even a contest at first, right? I mean, it looked looked like professional versus junior out there. It was it was that huge. It was that large of a gap, um, and that's just a credit to Jennifer Brady because she was on fire to start this thing. You mentioned Putin Seva gets a little bit of traction gets that first set back to 6-3 but I mean look I had no doubt going into set number two that Jennifer Brady was just going to roll through this one and I mean look she did everything right she served well had zero double faults I mean Putin Seva of course was on the defensive here but only hits six winners this entire match if you're not including the one ace she has I mean look Jennifer Brady just simply outclassed her. It, it, you know, it's as straightforward as that one. And now, I mean, Jennifer Brady looks really good going into the semis. Really hard to doubt her level at this point. No, it's amazing because it says 22 winners against 24 unforced errors, but I would love to count in how many forced errors she ca- caused uh, Putin Seva to commit because, I mean, the Brady forehand is just working Putin save around the court, and it's just working all of her opponents around the court. It's that heavy. She hits it with such great depth as well, and she's able to knock, you know, hit brush off the short angle too in this match which is so impressive again 63% of her first serves go in she only wins 58% of those points but she's 13 of 18 on her second serve she's just able to follow it up with plus one combinations whether it be forehand down the line forehand cross court inside in inside out she's got it all working for her and then physically in this match you know Putin Seva did a lot to make the extra ball to make this match a grind in this one distance covered per point both players over 50 feet per point Putin save a little over 53, Brady just under it, but I mean, it didn't matter. Brady held up physically, and that's a concern I had for her. She's played so much tennis these past six weeks. How would her body hold up? She's fit as a fiddle. I mean, she's playing exceptional tennis, and you look with this result. Jennifer Brady now at a new career high in the rankings. She's all the way up to number 25, and honestly, that feels a little bit low with how well she's playing, and at 25 years old to now be inside the top 30. Life's about to get really fun for Jen Brady. Yeah, I mean, look, the level she's displaying right now is top 10. Um, and that's just that's just clear at this point. Yes, you can argue about all the different people who were or were not in this U.S. Open, but the bottom line is she's in the semis of the U.S. Open, and with that level, she would be regardless, or at least she would be very deep into this tournament regardless. So really great stuff from Jen Brady, and yeah, just, I mean, regardless of what happens from here, you know she's got to take a ton of confidence out of this year's, you know, New York swing. Yeah, no, I do think there's something to be said. The draw gods have been kind to her. There's no denying that. Didn't have to play Pliskova, you know, didn't, uh, her biggest seed, I think the highest seed she's played is Angelique Kerber, who obviously came into this uh, tournament as everyone else did with not that much match experience, but she took advantage of that draw. She can't control who's across the net from her. She can only play that match, and she's won them all, and she's won them all comfortably, and yeah, I agree with you. She belongs in the final four here, so a great result from her. Uh, And of course, those are our four winners 
winners. Those are four of our semifinalists. We're going to learn here on day 10 who the other half of those semifinals will uh, be participating in the other half of those semifinals, I should say. So with that in mind, Jamie, let's get to our day 10 preview and let's stick with the women's here to start. Two really fun matches uh, for very different reasons. Obviously, uh, you have Serena Williams uh, taking on Svetana Perankova. They have played four times in their career. Serena Williams 4-0 on those occasions. Now, they went three sets twice, once at the French Open, once on uh, at Eastbourne on the grass, but both times they've played on hardcourt. Serena Williams straight set wins. Their last matchup didn't ha- uh, happened all the way back in 2015, I should say, at the Western and Southern Open. Jamie, your thoughts on this one. Where are you leaning? Yeah, I mean, this one's really interesting. I think the the real X factor for me here is all of the pressure that's on Serena. Um, you know, look, we've seen Serena start matches slowly and particularly when there's some pressure involved, you know, that can be amplified. So for me, I would expect a first set to be a little dicey, some tight shots here and there. Perankova is going to come out and play the tennis that she's been playing. Serena probably going to spray some balls, probably going to be tight. I expect that first set to be close, maybe even go Perankova's way, and then it's up to Serena um, to steady the ship and get through it. So that's kind of what I expect. But if Serena comes out on – look, Serena has the biggest weapons in this match. She's always going to have the biggest weapons in the women's game for the most part. So you expect her if she – you know. If she catches her A game on and it gets rolling, she's going to win this thing, and and that's just true for any person she plays. For me, though, the real test is going to be right out of the gate. If she gets broken right at the front of this, you know, things get sketchy. If she just plays solid buttoned-up tennis, I think she's going to get through this thing. And look, everybody is afraid to play Serena Williams, right? There's so much intimidation. There's so much that goes there, and she needs to use that fact like she has throughout the rest of this tournament, right? She stays around in matches because she knows that the other player is going to get tight because they're playing Serena on Arthur Ashe. So I think there's a lot to this match. I expect the first set to be really tight, but I do expect Serena to win this one. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I've said it uh, jokingly, but I don't think I've ever seen Perankova miss. She's going to need that sort of performance today if she's going to knock off Serena. Uh, I just think Serena's been playing too well. I think that serve is the biggest weapon on the court. I think, you know, yeah, has done a really good job in her last three wins, all good ones over Muguruza, over Vekic, over Cornet, but Serena Williams is a completely different beast, and I just think it's going to be too much Serena today. I'm leaning her direction as well. Our other match on the day. Really fun one. Toss-up, closest odds, according to our friends at DraftKings right now. Victoria Azarenko, Western and Southern Open champ, going to take on number 16 seed Elise Mertens. Uh, they have never played in singles. They have, though, played twice before on the doubles court. Mertens getting wins on both of those occasions. Feels worth uh, noting before, while this is, uh, again, Mertens trying to make the semifinals in singles at a slam, I believe, for the second time in her career. She is a Grand Slam champion in doubles, and obviously she will be familiar with Azarenka's game and vice versa. Jamie, which way are you leaning in this one? Well, first of all, I have to say the draw gods finally really pitting us against one another because you are going to be Team Mertens. I'm Team Azarenka here. Um, so <laughs> It was I, inevitable. Look, it was inevitable. And look, it, it's really hard for me to even doubt Elise Mertens given the level we've seen from her. I mean, some of the wins she's rattled off and just the level of tennis we've seen in the last couple of weeks have been... Look, the tennis has been great, but from the side of Vika Azarenka, look, I've I started following her um, on this comeback, and I can't stop now. So I'm I'm firmly on the <laughs> Azarenka 
train at this point. Um, it's left the station, and, and I'm going to support her in this one. Look, it's going to be difficult. I would expect this match to go three sets regardless. It's just up to who's going to get it done in the deciding set. I, I, but I expect, yeah, if it's a two-and-a-half set, I'm taking the over. I think that's uh, that's – I agree with you, first of all, on the over two-and-a-half set. That was one of my aces of the day. Rothman and I also going to hit, I think, privately and if you want in on this Jamie we'll talk after but 21 and a half games the over because I think we both agree it's just going to be a close match even more so than picking a winner I had this series with Rothman I want to run it by you or maybe I ran it by you and then I ran it by Rothman at this point I can't even remember who I say what to but you know Azarenka's had some really good wins uh, during these past two weeks. You know, she beat Sabalenka, obviously. She beat Joe Conta. She beat On Shabur. Uh, she beat, who you know, so many great— uh, It was a really good match for her over Mukova, obviously. Uh, in the last round, she knocked off Sviatek as well. She's knocked off uh, a ton of Caroline Garcia, Donna Vekic. I still think Elise Mertens is going to present the biggest challenge Azarenka's played yet, and you look for Elise Mertens in this tournament. I don't think she's dropped a set, Jamie, and that includes wins over, obviously, Sophia Kennan. It includes a win over Katie McNally. It includes a really impressive first-round win over Siegmund. You know, her only loss here in New York was a 2-6 and six loss to Elise Mer- uh, to Naomi Osaka, and she could have won that second set. She was right there, and so, you know, this is obviously a big test for Mertens as well, but I just see this match going the distance. I see it. it I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing that we hope for is that one person doesn't just come out and, you know, seriously underperform what they have been doing the last couple of weeks because, you know, you, you want to talk about two people who have been at the top of their game for the last couple of weeks. It's these two players. I mean, obviously, we, we, are, we all know Osaka and talked about her, but these two are firmly at the top of that list as well. So it would be unfortunate if we saw sort of a tight, weird match like we did with Chorich and Zverev, but I don't expect that to happen. Both of these people have been at the big stage, and, and so I, look, I expect a really, really good match here. And like I said, hopefully it's three set for the spectator, but it is what it is at this point. I'm still, I, I still have to side with Azarenka just because look, I've already made that decision. Yeah, no, you're, you're in on the Azarenka bandwagon. Now you know how I feel about Alex Zverev. Um, yeah, I look again, it feels worth noting. I'm just going to say one more time. We are two wins away from a Serena Vika uh, semifinal. And that's something I think all of us can be excited about. All right, let's flip gears. Let's go to the men's quickly. Again, two really fun matches on the men's side today. All Russian battle, Daniil Medvedev versus Andrei Rublev. Medvedev 3-0 and in their career matches in pro events. He beat him in Budapest indoor hardcore, beat him uh, last year twice. Uh, that Budapest 2016, he beat him last year twice at Cincy and then in St. Petersburg. Both quarterfinal matches, both straight sets. Only fitting that it's another quarterfinal match here then, Jamie. Which way are you leaning in this one? I mean, listen, I think you have to lean to Neil Medvedev's way, given what we've seen from him in this tournament. I mean, just the wins he's put, uh, the, the wins he's put together. Look, it's not like he's played, you know, the highest of the highs in this draw, but, you know, a 1 2 and 4 win, a 3 2 and 4 win, a 3 3 and 2 win, a 4 1 and 0 win. That's his U.S. Open run so far. So the quietest move to the quarters for Daniil Medvedev, but he's just been so good. So I don't know how you doubt him at this point. On the flip side, yes, Rublev been really solid. The only set he drops is to Matteo Berrettini, who also hadn't dropped a set. But at this point, you know, if I have to ask the question, are Rublev's weapons big enough to overpower Daniil Medvedev? At this point, no. Rublev's got to be red hot to get through this one. Can I, can I'm sticking I give you, Medvedev. 
I'm going to give you a slight counter. It's not that they're not big enough. It's that they're not consistent enough. You have to hit that huge inside-in forehand that Rublev likes to well, do. Sure. And, and he just can't Yeah, I mean, it. anybody, anybody yeah. can slap a ball, yes. I'm saying, yeah. yeah he, he's no, but I'm be saying deep. anyone can slap a ball, but few can slap it like Rublev. I just simply meant I don't think it's big enough to hit through him throughout yep. an entire match. Yep, no, I agree with you there. I also think, again, you're giving spin to Daniil Medvedev. You're going to let him hit flat and just absorb your pace. That's, I think that's exactly what he wants to do. And I will say this. I think the best bet in this match is the over three and a half sets. I just think these guys know each other too well. The, they're both going to compete too hard for it to just be a straight set performance. But you looked at the over-under here, Jamie. Normally a four-set match for over-under, it's 40 and a half games, right? That's usually where they set it at. And this is just me now having looked at these odds for a month straight if I hadn't picked up trends what am I doing at this point DraftKings has this over under at 38 and a half that feels low what that tells me is they think it's going to be a straight set match am I missing something here like am I crazy for thinking Rublev's going to take a set I don't know I mean look if I had to predict right now I might go with I might go with my boy Danny in three because He's just looked so good. Rublev, you know, has a tendency to at least just not let off the gas, but, you know, spray a few balls here and there. And you just cannot do that against Daniil Medvedev. You just can't, you, you know, you can't get down love 30 in a service game. Like, it's just, yeah. it's too, I don't know, it's too difficult. So for me, Medvedev is just too solid in this one. Now, listen, if Rublev's on fire, you know, who knows? He could take this thing and it would be fine. But, I think that it's one thing. If it's going to be a straight set win, it's absolutely for Daniil Medvedev. If Rublev's going to win this, I don't think there's a chance he gets out of this in straight sets. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. In the realm of possibilities, Medvedev in straights is on that spectrum. I don't think Rublev in straights is either. I'm leaning Medvedev, but I really thought it was going to be four sets, and now I'm now I'm, I have reservations. But I agree with you. I think Medvedev just too much length, too big of a weapon with that serve. He has abilities to hurt Rublev, expose that movement. Rublev, of course, can do that to anyone with that serve, with that forehand. It's it's a deadly combination, one of the top serve forehand combos on tour. But I. Agree agree with you just institutional know-how three out of five set format give me Daniil Medvedev in this one as well last match for us here on day 10 Alex Diemenau are going to take on Dominic team team 2-0 in their career head-to-head matchups they played back in the 2017 U.S. Open that was a straight set win for team but at that point I'm pretty sure Alex Diemenauer had yet to enter puberty uh he obviously also Dominic team also knocked off uh Diemenauer in uh I believe Davis Cup playoff that was on clay back in 2018, but that was a three out of five set match. It went four at the time. Which way are you leaning in this one, Jamie? Yeah, again, with, you know, similar to what I said with Medvedev, I think you just have to lean Dominic team right now. I mean, the, the level we've seen from him in the last couple of matches, just really solid. And look, we know what we can get from Alex Damonauer. There are going to be some phenomenal points in this one where he tracks down balls. But I mean, look, it just comes down to this: Can Dominic Team just wail on the ball enough <laughs> to, to where the to where Damonauer just can't get that last one? And, and right now, I think the answer is yes. Dominic Team is comfortable from the ground, so it's going to be a really interesting matchup, right? Both of these guys so comfortable on a hard court. Yes, obviously Dominic Team prefers the slower one and the clay, but his weapons are just so big that it's just going to be unrelenting and overwhelming power. Now, similar to Rublev, right? If Dominic Team can't get a lot of these conversions if he gives openings and service games to Damonauer then who knows because Damonauer can do he can scramble with the best of them he can make things tricky he can get one two three four extra balls back 
But to me right now, I just can't doubt Dominic's team, particularly after that performance against FAA. I mean, the guy just looks too good. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think it's a sneaky, not terrible matchup for Dimenauer because I think he can use the spin, the heaviness of the team's ball, absorb that, bunt down, and play a little bit flat like he likes to do and just drive that ball through the court. But it's just... To have to do that for three out of five sets against Dominic Team, who's clearly physically locked in, who we said from the get-go, we want to see where he's at entering week two of this event and what he did to FAA in the fourth round. That's exactly the sort of when we wanted to see him uh, have to kick off this week. I agree. I just think it's a lot of Dominic Team. I think Team uh, is going to just be serve, hit too big for Demon Hour, overwhelm him with pace. I do think this is going to be a four-set match, but I am leaning Dominic Team as well. And look, if we have Karina Busta, Zverev, Team, and Medvedev as our semifinalists, I am just fine with that outcome, given we entered this event with no Nadal, no Federer. I think that's one of the better outcomes we could have had, uh, but I'm yeah. sure we will talk about that more at a later time. All right, couple things. Again, I just want to do this quickly because there have been some developments in the tennis world. We can go through them fast, and then, Jamie, we're going to go watch ourselves some Day 10 tennis. Uh, obviously, by the way, there are events going on right now at the ATP level in Kitzbühel on the clay, in Istanbul right now at the WTA level, a couple of challengers and ITF events going on as well. We're going to save those results to when we focus on clay as we start to prepare for the French Open. Nevertheless, just wanted to point out we are aware they are happening But in terms of developments at the French Open, Jamie, the French Tennis Federation releasing their guidelines for this French Open, a couple of notable things I just want to let you listeners know about. Obviously, FTF right now, planning to allow fans at this event. Now, they're limiting they're limiting the number of spectators during the tournament. There will be none during qualifying. There will be three separate sites at this French Open facility. 5,000 people will be allowed at two of the sites, one, uh, 1,500 people allowed at one of them. You can only go where your ticket says. The seats will be in groups of four with a seat placed in between all of these people. Anyone over 11 must be wearing masks. That's from the fan perspective. A couple of other things from the tournament perspective. A, all players must stay at one of the two tournament hotels. They're going to be tested with regular intervals. They're only allowed into the training center on non-match days. They're not allowed to be wandering the grounds. Also, all press conferences will be video conferences. And then lastly, worth noting for this event, given the the dearth of other professional events, the FTF giving 30% more prize money for a first-round loss than last year, also increasing qualifying money by 27%. Jamie, just your thoughts to this French, you know, open the fact. It it seems like they're going to allow fans, and that feels a little bit crazy. Yeah, that, I, that that's really my stipulation right now at this point. Look, glad they're doing these other things to try and keep everything safe, but at this point, in my opinion, just doesn't seem appropriate um, to allow fans. And, and look, even the fact that the U.S. Open is going is, is, is great. I'm glad that there are no fans at the U.S. Open, though, particularly just how the coronavirus situation has been in the States. Um, really excited that they decided to go no fans and didn't try and die, you know try something dicey. Um, look, 
I don't know enough about French regulations, just governmentally, not necessarily within the tennis space. So I don't know what exactly they are having to go through, what hoops they're having to jump through, what what the setup looks exactly like right now. But for me, it just feels wrong to have thousands of fans there, even though it's limited and there are you know certain things they're putting in place. It just feels weird at this point, especially if the U.S. Open proved that you can run an you know an effective event that still has a lot of great outcomes without fans. Why push that now for the French? I, I don't know. It just feels a little wrong, but hey, look, obviously well outside of my hands, that decision. So it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen the USTA's bottom line. Who knows if they just took a bath in terms of the amount of money they lost this year. But, you know, if, yeah. the, Fr- if the French Tennis Federation says, hey, we can't even hold- think about holding this event unless we have fans, like, then maybe don't hold the event this year. Because you look at the numbers in Paris and it, they're just – I think they're worse than they are right now in New York. And that's obviously, so you're going to allow fans under that situation. That doesn't seem to make sense. And look, we already learned Ashley Barty, uh, much like she did for the U S open opting out of traveling to defend her title here in Paris. It's a combination of obviously uh, concerns over COVID, but also the fact that she doesn't feel comfortable, hasn't been able to get in the sort of training she would like with her coach due to the lockdowns. But yeah, it's just, I mean, again, uh, you and I are not government uh, health officials. We don't know what sort of guidelines are going to be best to mitigate uh, the spread of COVID-19. And maybe the French sports minister has seen data that we don't, to your point. But if the risk wasn't necessary, it just doesn't feel worthwhile. You know, I know Serena has already come out and said, look, I do not want to stay at one of the two hotels. I would like to get private housing. Um, And because she's Serena Williams, obviously she can afford to do that. And the U.S. Open said, yeah, you're in your rights to do that. The French Tennis Federation, not a Allowing that right now, going to be interesting to say see if we see a wave of players, you know, opt out because of that. Yeah, and look, bottom line, right? You you hope for the best with all of this. It's just given all of the restrictions, all of the different rules, plus you add the dynamic of fans there. It's it's just hard to see this one going through without something bad happening. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, that was the last thing I just wanted to touch on because, of course, all of us excited for this home stretch of the U.S. Open, but the French Open right around the corner. And, of course, we will talk about all of that preview, all of the action on clay when we get to that time. But for now, we have to get through this U.S. Open. And in case any of you listeners have missed any of the action, go check out the mini breaks Jamie and I have done each and every day throughout this event. Of course, you can see a lot of our content on YouTube as well. Jamie joining me to preview this week to action. And think those previews still hold up pretty well now, so be sure to go check that out. If you want to hear more about Novak Djokovic, his defaulting from this event, you can find that YouTube video on there as well. Of course, you want to hear our picks for Day 10, go check out our GSP Ace of the Day, which you can listen to every morning on the Great Shot podcast feed or see those selections on YouTube and our social media as well. With all of that content in mind, shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do. I mentioned this to Roth and Jamie last night Westoff comes down and he's like dude I just can't edit any more videos right now I was like no I completely feel you let's watch some tennis I'll put the Lakers up on my laptop we'll obviously have tennis on the big screen because it's the most important but it was just it's always great to get to work with them because they truly are the best in the business as are our sponsors Midwest Sports and Aerobar go to MidwestSports.com use the promo code CR15 go to Aerobar.com use that promo code CRACKED15 as well and remember if you have missed any of our content you can find it all on our website crackedrackets.com twitter instagram facebook we're at cracked rackets i am at great shot pod with that in mind jamie any final thoughts before we wrap this bad boy 
I have one final thought. It's a question for you, and it's a complete non sequitur. It's something that came up when I was looking through. I was I was Googling things, looking at scores, clicked on Dominic Team. Where do you think he ranks all-time ATP prize money career? Because this was interesting to me. So it's the 2020s and 2010, so he made more money. Two French Open finals. That's going to give him big bank. He won Indian Wells. I'm going to say he ranks currently 11th. 14th. 14th, But that's yeah. pretty close, yeah. I mean, look, it's it's just crazy. And look, you mentioned it, how skewed it is um, you know, with the 2010s and now in no, the 2020s. It's a, but it's yeah, just it's crazy to me. It's like, wow. I was like, wow, that is a lot of money. If any of you listeners out there are smart enough to do this, if you will send me in my DM a prize money adjusted for inflation all time, like because, right, like if you adjust Jimmy Connors or Bjorn Borg or John McEnroe for inflation, like they'd get up there. But like it's laughable how much more money Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer have made than everyone else. Oh, yeah. I mean, Djokovic at 140, he's like 145 now, Fed at like 130, Nadal at like 120. And then the next closest is Murray at like 61, 62, somewhere in there. So it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely nuts. I think those figures are, you know, at the end of, or, uh, you know, as of yeah. this summer. So they're pretty, they're pretty recent, but it's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Zverev's in the top 20 already, which is like a joke. He's close. He's already made over 20. Yeah, what is he at right now? Like number twenty-two or something? Um, according to this list, let me count it up. One, two, three. Four, <laughs> That's good. This is some live counting. This is how we do it at Cracked Rackets. Now, uh, uh, it's probably one. right at the top twenty. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it, we're right around there. Which is just crazy because he hasn't really won. I mean, he's won a couple Masters titles, but yeah. Anyways, uh, it, it's that's a fun. I like that question at the end. That was a good point to end. So we can wrap things there for my wonderful co-host James Foster McDonald, our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. 